You're listening to the In the Rhythm podcast from the Johnson & Johnson Institute. Dr. Wright and Dr. Silverstein are being compensated by and presenting on behalf of Biosense Webster, Inc. and must present information in accordance with applicable regulatory requirements. But also what we did is we cross-trained more of our CATH nurses such that they actually, and it's a core group, so it isn't just anybody coming in. So there's a core group of a few nurses who know EP and actually have been mostly with EP. So that has helped a lot. So being creative with staffing as well. I went through this having been here about a year. I think the staff, when they first met me, thought I was crazy and they probably still think I'm crazy, but you have to build trust and have them catch your vision. So, you know, set some small goals, have some victories and they start seeing, wait a second, maybe he's onto something. everyone and welcome to part two on this episode of our In the Rhythm podcast from Biosense Webster. I'm Dave Jackson and our guests for this episode have been Dr. Jennifer Wright and Dr. Joshua Silverstein who have been sharing with us tips on how to create efficient and healthy workplaces in our labs. Now I want to continue our conversation with this particular question and I know there have been processes and policies put in place that we've all tried and we thought would really make a difference and maybe create those efficiencies that we're looking for, but for some reason they just didn't quite make it. So do you have any thoughts on that or any stories you could share? I find one of our biggest challenges um, is working uh, with anesthesia and being consistent with our workflows, depending on who's there on any given day. And it's, I think, tough integrating the two services where, you know, we're one of many different departments they work with and the way we our arrangement is is you know we may get one of 30 different anesthesiologists in a given day or one of 70 different crnas and so there's very little consistency and so to try to get around that you know we've come up with protocols um for instance when to use an arterial line when when not to when it's safe and it's a struggle you know getting everybody on the same page i i think also, like when you make a protocol and you standardize it in the EP lab and getting it out to the other world um, beyond the EP lab, for example, the PACU, we might have a discussion. Uh, and I have an example of this from emails going around last week, a year and a half ago. We said we are no longer going to put Foley catheters in our EF patients. And there was a lot of shock going into that because, you know, our procedures can be long. But then we realized that we don't have to do that. And we came up with a protocol that was advised by an expert urologist. So um, just two weeks ago, I got emails about why are we doing this? And yeah, we we let you guys know a year and a half ago we were doing this because it's not written like on the website somewhere. So that's a challenge. And now I guess we got to write it on the website. So um, I'd say one other challenge I was thinking about too in, in standardizing is getting all my partners on the same page. Um, we've been able to come like come together on a lot of the stuff where there's data. But as you know, when performing an AF ablation, there is a lot of heterogeneity. So how to get everybody on the same page, maybe, you know, can we use the same product? It helps the staff if they know what we're going to be using on a day to day. But then again, you know, we're a teaching institution. So it's great also to expose the fellows different ways of doing things. And if they have the same outcome with similar times, then, you know, it, it, it also works too in that way. I have, I have an, another one <laughs> that uh, 
it was surprising to me uh, what a challenge it was. And this was uh, trying to cut down on our prep time when once the patient gets in the room until the procedure starts, our patients are coming to the lab and needing to be shaved. And I thought, oh, well, we, we should be able to get the pre-op area to shave. Well, it took me drawing diagrams, writing protocols. I mean, stuff that I would have never thought was going to be necessary to get the pre-op area to shave a patient. <laughs> Something that seems so simple can sometimes be so challenging. Now, we all know coming up with protocols is great, but implementing them can sometimes be daunting for long-term effectiveness. How do you make things last once they've been established? So I, I think um, consistency is very important, that you don't just start something and then drop it and come back to it in three months. It has to be repeated over and over and over again. Every day, it, the same expectation is there. I think as Jennifer talked about earlier, collecting the data for whatever goal you're, you're alluding to or that you're trying to implement, that you have data so that you can in fact go back to your team or to anesthesia or to the pre-op area with data to show them facts, not just your opinion. Um, because I, you know, I think specific examples are much better or using data than just going and say, you know, you guys need to do this, this, and this better. Yeah. I mean, so in, in part of this process improvement, like if you've ever participated in a 5S or an E3 is to, um, you know, not, not only identify areas of potential, but also, um, that follow-up to be able to sustain it, um, and how you do that is going to potentially vary from one process to another. But yeah, so what I determined and say for the example I used with our bladder management protocol in the PACU is that, well, that it never got built into the order set or, you know, we got to put this online. So let's just make this happen now. Even though everybody was educated, we sometimes need that continual education and somewhere else to put it. Absolutely. I, I want to ask a question now that probably should have asked earlier, but I'd like to hear what the lab was like before you started your journey and where you've brought it to at this point. Yeah, I, I think we're all on different parts of the journey. I have been here in Pittsburgh for about a year and we've, we've made a lot of progress in the year, but we're still a work in progress. Um, where we started, I would say we were not very good at starting on time. We're still not perfect and we're making improvement. Um, so uh, that that's definitely one of our focuses is, you know, just starting your, your day on time. I've, I always tell people if, if you don't start your day on time, you will not be an efficient lab. Um, so that that's definitely a focus of ours. So I try to break the day into different components. And one is that initial checkpoint of starting the day on time. And then it's the prep time. So patient gets in the room and from the time they get in the room until you can get access is prep time. And then you have access until the end of the case is the procedure. Then from the time you finish, or the, you know, the EP doctor is done, the catheters are out until the patient gets out of the room. I call that takedown time. And then you get the patient leaves the room until the next patient comes in is turnover time. And so I think looking at all those different components, um, our goal is to have each of them around 20 minutes um, with the prep time, the takedown time, and the turnover time. It ends up being that when 
the most important metric from my perspective is when I finish my one case, how long does it take me to start my next case? And ideally, I want that to be around an hour when I'm working in one lab. And when I first got here, it was two on, an, on a given day. We're, you know, we're down close to an hour now. Our turnover times went from about 45 minutes to about 20 minutes. Um, and we're con- continually looking for w- ways to improve that still. Wow. That, that's a pretty drastic reduction in hours. I mean, you just don't roll over and do that. What, what were some of the secrets to driving that? So it's, um, this really comes down to when you look at those times I mentioned, you know, the prep time, the procedure time, um, the procedure end time, and then turnover. There's some of those areas that are really easy to make improvements quickly. It's the starting the day on time, physicians being there on time. That's easy. That, I mean, we should be 100% on that one. Um, it's the turnover time is all about the team working together to drop off one patient, pick up the other one, clean the room. It's really, there's not much to a turnover. But sometimes you get, when you, those things aren't all happening at the same time when you're doing it in serial instead of in parallel. Um, it can take a long time. It could, you know, I talked to some people, it takes them an hour and a half, two hours between cases. Um, so I think if you break it down into all those components and then look at, okay, where are the easy areas that we can eliminate some waste right away? That's the way I would approach it. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Josh. And, you know, the first part is starting on time. And so how we started and, and how, how this all began is, right after we opened up post COVID, um, I was doing my first AF post COVID and we have two and a half EP labs at a primary hospital. And we have other EP labs, um, at a community hospital across town. And I looked over and the other EP lab was dark and it was just so ominous, like this dark EP lab. And I asked the staff, I'm like, why is it, why is it dark? And they're like, well, uh, we don't have any staff. So then that's when we started in this process. I looked at actually our clinical, it was Brandon Tran at the time. And he's like, hey, did you know about Dr. Silverstein, Dr. Osario, Dr. Zagroski? They do these seminars on EP lab efficiency. I said, really? And then that's how it started. And so since then, I've learned a lot. And one of the things we did when it came to starting on time is adjusting our provider schedules so that they could be here at 7.30 and start their cases on time. And we just said, listen, if you're not going to be able to start a case on time, then you switch your lab days with somebody else. We have six um, interventional EP providers here. And so that actually made a huge difference. Also, because we collected data and we did a whole dissection of the process We found that patients weren't getting scheduled appropriately. So we hired a new scheduler who's been amazing. And so now the patients are getting scheduled. I mean, so if there's a backlog with actually scheduling the patients from the clinic, you're not going to see them in the lab. Um, You know, another aspect of this we noticed was staffing availability. So even though we couldn't necessarily, we we did get more FTE, but also what we did is we cross-trained more of our cath nurses such that they actually, and it's a core group, so it isn't just anybody coming in. So there's a core group of a few nurses who know EP and actually have been mostly with EP. So that has helped a lot. So being creative with staffing as well. 
Let's go back to the advocacy topic and lobbying for resources, building advocacy teams for others to go to bat for you and, and help you get what you need. What have your experiences been like, the, the conversations and the presentations? How do you negotiate and how do you point, uh, direct the conversation where you want it to go armed with data, things like that? What stories could you tell us? So, you know, I, I went through this um, having been here about a year. Uh, I think the staff, when they first met me, thought I was crazy and they probably still think I'm crazy, but um, <laughs> you have to build trust and have them catch your vision. So you get, you know, set some small goals, have some victories and they start seeing, wait a second, maybe he's onto something. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm doing this one for the patients, two, it's for them and for their families, right? And so I think it's easy once they start seeing that how this may work for um, taking better care of people, um, you know, getting to patients sooner. And then it's also going to benefit them because they get to go get home on time, get out of the lab on time. Um, then they catch the vision. And then, you, you know, it's, it's not just your staff, though. It's administration. Um, they need to trust you. And so, you know, I spent time writing a business plan recently. Um, and sitting down with the other managers um, and going through all the numbers and how we can build an effective team and what does it mean to be adequately staffed in the EP lab. And I think it was eye-opening uh, to administration to see what my vision was, where I think we can be in a year or two with the appropriate staffing, what that could mean for our patients in the community and also for the hospital and for their budgets. Yeah, I, I think starting, of course, with the lab staff, advocacy is very important because our staff, they are the foundation of what we're doing. So engaging them in the process, asking them for their suggestions, that, that's been really helpful. And then showing them that you're going to advocate for them. But being realistic, as we were saying before, as to what we can potentially expect in the near future versus, you know, years and years and years to come. So we had one example where um, there was a pay grade differential for our nurses. And even though we didn't get the pay grade change that we wanted, we got a pay grade change. And so, you know, helping them to do that, I'm not sure how much I helped, but I was there at the meeting and just backing them up and supporting them. And, you know, I think that was an important part of the process uh, for, for people to see that you're advocating on their behalf. And then also that, you know, their opinions are probably the most important opinions because they're the ones doing the work and, um, they, they need to be able to provide that input to you before you make that change. Um, so setting expectations throughout the day, um, minimizing uncertainty has been very important and, you know, starting on time, that drove them nuts before when they would show up on time and we didn't. It's very rude. You know, like who do we think we are? Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so when I, when I uh, visit other labs or speak with other labs and I get the staff to, um, on their own away from the doctor, that's always the number one complaint is that how do we get our doctor to the lab on time? Um, and I agree with you. It's it, if I were the staff, that would really bother me. And it's totally counterproductive to what we're trying to do. Um, when I, when I first got here, um, the other thing I, I think is really important is talk to every one of your staff and get their perspective. Cause each of them have 
you know, different, different ideas of how to make things better. So I went around and talked to all of them. And, and one of the staff said to me, it doesn't matter what I think anyway, you know, it, it's not going to change anything. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, that's the opposite of what, of the culture that we need here to make things better. And so I want you to feel that you can voice your concern and that we can then go on and make improvements based on your concerns. And I think all the staff should feel that way. Um, you know, we have in our break room a whiteboard with this, it's called the SWAT board. It's S-W-O-T, and it stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And on that board, you know, we have all the concerns of the staff, basically. And I looked at that board actually today. I was eating lunch in the break room with the staff, which I like to do sometimes just to hear what, you know, the general mood of what's, what's going on. And I noticed that almost everything on the board that were concerns we've addressed or we are currently addressing. And those are the moments where you're like, oh, wait, you know, I, we have accomplished something. <laughs> right. And it's high fives all around, which is awesome. So um, what are the things that you all have learned when it comes to dealing with different personalities and uh, uh, trying to accomplish and, and, and move the ball forward uh, when just those that you're working with and, and teaming with are you're just, they think fundamentally differently than, than you and the directions that you're trying to go. Yeah, that, that is very challenging sometimes when you're like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to find a common purpose with, with somebody? So I think, you know, taking the time to understand what drives them and motivates them is important and how you could use that to obtain your common goal. Um, you know, for anesthesia, for example, um, you know, we've had some, um, some staffing issues with anesthesia. Um, and so this is, this is throughout the hospital. So, I know that they want to support us. And um, so, it, it, you know, staffing goes up and down. And so the one example I can say is that, um, you know, I've been advocating for more anesthesia teams for the EP slash cath lab for a while. And then it was about a year ago, one of the anesthesiologists said to me, Jen, I mean, are you guys not scheduling cases? Cause we can't do them with you. And I said, yes. He's like, well, I don't want to be a reason for patient delay. We don't want to do that. And so I was like, hey, this is a great opportunity to give us some more teams. And so it did. It happened. Um, and of course, the staffing changed and we lost that extra team. But, you know, we're just working to get it back. So finding that common goal, which was, wait, we don't want to delay patient care because it really comes down to that. Why did we all go into this in healthcare? It's the patient, right? So going back to we can provide better patient care, more timely care for these patients, so how can we do that together? Yeah, I completely agree with Jennifer that you, you have to find common ground. And for all of us, it should be patient care. Um, and that, that could be a motivating uh, force. Um, there are going to be people that maybe that doesn't work for. And sometimes you have to find the right allies. There may not be the person you were told to, to talk to in a certain department. You might need to find someone else in that department that's going to be your ally and understand your vision. Um, I think part of this also is you have to build trust to for them to know that what your intentions are and that you are, in fact, trying to help people to get home on time and to um, make a profitable business for the hospital. 
Um, so I think some of it can't happen overnight. It's going to take, you know, building a track record, um, delivering on your promises, showing what the true intentions of your heart are. And, um, you know, I think with, um, I'm really uh, proud of the relationship I have right now with the manager of the um, EP lab and just sitting with her today. Like she, she said that she appreciates that she knows I'm her ally and I can say the same for her. She's my ally. And we share the same vision and same goals. And so I think building as many of those sort of um, relationships within your hospital and organization are, are just crucial. Well, I want to thank you both for being here on our On the Pulse podcast. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode and ask you to leave us with one thing, one story, uh, maybe a light bulb moment or something that was maybe transformational in your own thinking or those of your team that you have experienced in your journey over the past couple of years? I have to say that one of the experiences that really was eye-opening to me is what happened this summer when we were understaffed. And we did what I really think was the right thing to do, which was do the number of procedures that we were staffed to do and not push the staff. Because I think we could have put the metal, you know, put the pedals in the metal and just kept pressing on. And we probably would have lost all of our staff if we had done that. And we would have been in a really bad situation. But instead, we, we did what we were staffed to do. And actually, it opened the door to have some really meaningful conversations with administration and to now have a plan in place to be properly staffed, um, it, you know, for this coming year and the years ahead. And I think it opened the door also to have those conversations going forward when things aren't looking so rosy to then go back and discuss where we are in our plan and what we need to accomplish our shared goals. Dr. Wright? So I think the light bulb moment starts with looking at where we were when we started this with the dark, ominous lab. And now we don't have that. I mean, our labs are, I, our utilization, I could guess, are, is in the high 90%. So going from there to here we are, and now we just need more space. Um, and how much we've learned along the process. And then, you know, the other aha moment is actually when I saw Josh last and him saying, well, I'm still learning from Jose. And I was like, oh, so you've, you're so far along in the process and you're still learning. So I don't feel as bad. So I think it's important for us to realize that this is a continuous process and it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a year. It's going to take time. Well, that brings us to the end of part two on this episode of our In the Rhythm podcast from Biosense Webster. I want to thank you for listening and let you know we'd love to hear from you and get ideas on what topics might be of interest for future podcast episodes. Once again, this is Dave Jackson saying thanks for listening and be well. This podcast is sponsored by Biosense Webster, Inc. The information contained in this podcast and findings and conclusions expressed are those reached independently by the authors. Copyright 2023 Johnson & Johnson Services, Inc. All rights reserved. EOS number 243-288-230-317.